Please pronounce your name correctly for me. Yes, it is Rhonda Bellamy. I am the founding executive director of the Arts Council of Wilmington and New Hanover County. Now, the, one of the f first things I always wonder about creative people and people that get in the creative fields is, of course, how did they even get to it? So, like, childhood, did you, were your parents creative? Was there some schooling? Like, what, what brought you to this field? I was always interested in the arts. Uh, my parents, who were both born and raised in Wilmington, actually met and married in New York City where we were all born and raised. And so when I was in high school, they decided that they wanted to move back to Wilmington. It was a very traumatic experience for me. I mean, can you imagine being a teenager, you know, from New York City, going, you know, using mass transit, going to museums and libraries on your own, and then being plopped down in Wilmington in the late 1970s. And so it was such a traumatic experience for me that I kept running away, skipping school, those types of things. And my mother, knowing my interest in the arts, decided that me, out of the five children that they had, needed a little something more. And so whenever she could get tickets to take me to a performance, she would take me because she knew that that was where my passion lies was and so the the very first play that she took me to was Sam Art Williams Pender County native who won a Tony nomination for Home a play that was based in a small town like Burgaw which is where he was from and he would go on to of course executive produce Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and many of the in Living Color and many of the sitcoms that came, you know, in the early 90s or so, that experience really kind of turned it around for me. I, I realized that I was not hurting anyone but myself by skipping school and running away from home. But it was because my mother understood that that was my passion and she was trying to, you know, find a way to bring me back around that cemented my, my love of the arts, if you will. Now... You have been a performer and you've also done radio. Like, so you've had a sort of a long career in, in and around like performing arts as well as the visual arts. Yes. Well, actually, my uh, day job for 22 years was as news director for a cluster of stations here in, in TV stations, right? No, radio stations. Radio stations. Mm -hmm. Okay. So 22 years as a news director, most recently for the uh, Cumulus 5 station cluster. I also hosted a daily talk show on politics and current events on our news talk station. So that was really where I was at. But I always, again, always loved the arts. And so in 1998, at my birthday party, actually, we were, you know, having a good time. Me and uh, lots of friends, Grinaldo Frazier, the late Grinaldo Frazier, Alicia Alexander and a few others were at my house and we said, well, you know, why don't we kind of put together a, an organization, an umbrella organization to start grooming talent? And the Black Arts Alliance was born. And several years after that, I founded the North Carolina Black Film Festival, which is getting ready to celebrate its 17th year. So that's how we got into it. Uh, interestingly enough, the Sam Art Williams that I referenced earlier he cast me as the lead in his play, 
the dance on Widow's Row and directed me in it. And so that was just a thrill. Uh, full, full circle, too. Coming full circle from this, you know, dropout in high school whose mother was able to, you know, get two tickets for us to go to this man directing me in something. It was something else. I mean, really coming full circle. Okay, so now I'm interested a lot in like the Black Arts Alliance and Black Film Festival and all this kind of stuff because I'm going to come off as a complete ass and a complete idiot. I'm a white man who was raised in Northern Virginia, Washington, D.C. area, and generally raised in what I would define as a pretty racist area, generally. Like, I know I'm going to get in trouble for this, but whatever. And then moved to Wilmington at one point. And Wilmington has also got a long racial history um, with all kinds of problems from, what, the 18... 1898. 1898. Mm -hmm. Race riots. What's the word they're using these uh, days? Massacre. Massacre. Okay. Uh The last time I was here, it was race riots. So now it's massacre. I totally agree with all of these statements. So when you decided to create the Black Arts Alliance, what were you trying to achieve with that? So we wanted a platform for African-Americans to become engaged in the arts community here. We Even at that point, 1998, we realized we've got a lot going on here. But, you know, you could go to the galleries, you could go to the theaters, you can go to dance performances, and you would never see African-Americans there. And so uh, it, it was really important to us to begin telling our stories and expressing ourselves in various forms. And we knew that unless you had some sort of structure for ensuring that there would be exposure to the arts, Mm -hmm. you can't have appreciation of the arts until you have exposure to the arts. Now, okay, one little thing, little, little nuanced thing. It was called Black Arts Alliance, Black Film Festival, but you just said African American. I'm a white man. I'm always personally very scared of what's the right word for me to be using yeah please school me on that i use them interchangeably okay i really do black is probably the word that many people use because it is the opposite of white so when you say uh, you know african-american my grandchildren one is filipino one is jamaican they don't really know or sense any connection to africa right so but we, you in in the United States, we use these words interchangeably. And it, well, like I'm in Europe, and they don't say, of course, African European or anything like. They just say black, right? Like, you know, or African yeah. specifically because that's generally where they're from. So, I've been away for a while, so I just sort of want to make sure I'm yeah, using the right term. Yeah, that's a great question. Don't want to offend anybody. No, great, great question. <laughs> okay, so the Black Arts Alliance. So you created it. And that's when I first met you, actually, mm-hmm. years ago, when it was a, out of the Cameron Art Museum and, it was a, and the Black Arts Alliance event. And I'm just sort of fascinated. So, okay, so you founded it in 1998. Mm-hmm. What's changed? Has anything gotten better? Yes. Or worse? I think things have gotten better. If you go to any of the Black Arts Alliance events, and, and mind you, I will say that when I accepted the position of executive director, I stepped off of all boards. I remember that. Including the ones that I founded, Cameron Art Museum and a, a few others. So I'm not as involved with them, but I do go to performances. In fact, I sat in on their virtual board meeting the other day because they're gonna do a drive-in festival in lieu of, because of COVID. Let me put it that way. When you go to these events that they sponsor, including a poetry jam, which has really helped to get the word out and to get people out to events, because Wilmington is very, it's an interesting place in terms of 
people who engage and where they engage and how they engage. And so prior to this time, these are people, I didn't even see them in the grocery store. I mean, I was like, well, who knew? We would have something out at Keenan Auditorium, which is a thousand seats, packed out. So where did these people come from? They were groomed. They, they, they found something that resonated with them, that spoke to their culture and their beliefs, and, and they started coming out. And had that not, the Black Arts Alliance and the film festival and those not been in place, then what would they have done? Where would they be? They'd be going back out, you know, into their little holes where they had apparently been before. So I'm, I'm really very, very grateful for what we were able to come up with then and to see it grow, for sure. Have there, any, have there been any sort of dramatic, keep in mind, of course, I've been in Europe for the past, let's say the six months since this massive sort of racial uprising has, has come up again, which this is the thing is like, everybody's like, oh, there's a racial uprising. I'm like, no, no, it's a racial uprising again. Like this has come on in the 60s, in the 80s. I mean, this is continually going on because, well, it, there is no justice for all of this stuff. There is no equality. There is no, none of the, everybody talks a big talk, but they don't walk a big walk in the end. So it's sort of like, how does that affect the arts? Because I still feel like there's somewhat, certain aspects of the arts are still very segregated. Like particularly, I'd say visual arts is pretty, still pretty segregated. Performing arts, less so, and music, of course, the least. Very much sort of blended very, very pretty well in music. But the visual arts is still, I feel, pretty elitist, snobby, white old men. Um, well, actually, so the art that we have in the windows, the art we have in the windows is from an African-American artist who's here. Uh, It's interesting that you say that, and I'll have to respond in a number of different ways. Go ahead. First of all, I will say that, you know, as a result of this belated racial reckoning, I'm being approached by a lot of corporate entities who all of a sudden want murals, they want signage, they want African-American artists to do this. And I have to be very frank with them. If you have not invested in early childhood education, arts education, if you've not advocated for that in our public schools, then you can't expect somebody to turn 18 and all of a sudden be a muralist. It just is not going to happen. That's why you have to take those steps to expose people so that they appreciate it and hopefully some of them will adopt it and become pretty good at it. From a young age. From a young age. But you can't just all of a sudden expect to have muralist and you've not really seeded muralist. But but also, doesn't that, like, from my perspective, doesn't that sort of feel just like a token gesture? Like, hey, we're not actually going to change any of our policies about racism but we're, and, and the arts, but we're going to just uh, put up this mural by a, a minority artist. Well... No, in the cases that I spoke well, of. Because I, it's not a longevity. I mean, it's not about supporting them throughout their career. It's about just like, hey, you know, there's a problems with racism right now. Let's put up one mural to, to just appease people. And then they'll forget about it three years later. And that artist then will not have no support in three years. So to me, it's about longevity of support, not uh, like individual elements. Yeah. 
at least in the instance that I'm talking about, they are talking about putting up eight murals. So if I can't find one muralist, I definitely can't find eight muralists, eight black muralists in, in town. So we will likely have to import. <laughs> I was going to say there aren't eight in there, Wilmington. No, no. no. I can think of three. Yeah, I was going to say three. Three is what three, I came yeah. up with. So, of course, I'm the one that <laughs> will say just what I feel. And in these meetings, you know, I, I tell them, you know, let's be careful that we are not reacting and not responding. Mm-hmm. So there is a difference. And I said, you know, at the risk of, uh, we risk looking gimmicky if it's just to throw a mural up and not train an inward lens on what we're doing and how we're contributing uh, to this situation. And so the, the large corporations that I'm speaking of are doing the same thing. They're looking, you know, what does our uh, staff look like? Right. That's my point is like the idea of like just hiring a muralist to come in and paint a mural, that's a gesture, but it's not an actual like systemic change to how, and let's keep it to the arts, how they support the arts, mm-hmm. you know? So mm-hmm. they may put up this mural this year, but next year they're going to support a traditional white artist again, be if things don't change systemically. Mm-hmm. So like, that's my thing is like, is it, I, I feel like, there's too much of the sort of one-time support, but not lifetime support. And yeah. when it comes to the arts, artists want, well, as a general, and I guess I'm speaking for myself, we want longevity of support instead of just like a one-time gesture. Mm-hmm. You know, even when it comes to like selling art, I'd rather sell a hundred pieces for $10 than one piece for $10,000 kind mm-hmm. of thing. Like I want more people to appreciate it. I want support for a longer period of time with a larger collector base, that kind of an idea. So what can be done to sort of assist in sort of this better breath of systemic change of support instead of just gestural support? It's to have someone like me at the table who is going to point it out every time. You know, this is gimmicky. This is not systemic change this doesn't move the needle for anybody and so i'm i'm very very clear on that you spoke about 1898 so i was the co-executive secretary of the centennial foundation and we are the ones that put the park up i love that monument yes yeah and so it was our mission to uh, you know to honor the memory and to help to heal the wounds and things so this is something that takes place over a period of time, there's an arc there. I'm sorry. It's okay. There's an arc that, you know, so we can't just hit it at this point and think, okay, done. We've done what we're supposed to do. You have to continue and you have to, as part of your your master planning for whatever organization or business that you're with, you know, look at this five years out, 10 years out. What does success look like if we are really intent on changing the trajectory for blacks or anybody else for that matter? So it can't be, you know, a hit it and quit it, a one and done. It has to be strategic and intentional. Okay, so what can be done? So so younger education, great, love that. I mean, but that should be, there should be generally more arts education period. Yeah. <laughs> That's not even a, a racial thing. That's no, just period. For everyone. Yeah. For everyone. I'm also on the executive committee of Arts North Carolina, which is our statewide advocacy group, and am also chair of the Arts NC 
Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee, and we just had our first meeting last Monday. And I'm telling you, we just had some wonderful conversations that came out of this notion of making the arts accessible for everyone. And one of them talked about flawed philanthropy and the fact that, you know, especially here in our area, this is pretty much an arts desert. Other than the, uh, an arts, you know, philanthropy desert, we have the Arts Council and we have the Landfall Foundation, which are the two biggies. But we don't have a lot of corporate funding for the arts in any big way. Philanthropy. Mm-hmm. It's not something I hear much about. Like people, it's very much done behind closed doors. It's very much like, you know, lawyers are sort of planning for it. And people are doing like legacy planning and estate planning and creating philanthropy ideas. Why is philanthropy such a, almost like to a certain extent, outside of major metropolitan areas, a bit of a dirty word? Like people don't want to participate in philanthropy. They don't do it. They don't even think about it. Yeah. You know, if you take a look at the New Hanover County Community Foundation and you go down their list of who they represent, most of them have donor advised funds that are very specific. You know, we want sports, we want soccer, we want, you know, healthcare, we want juvenile diabetes. It's very, very, and you know, having, I'm a grandmother. You look fabulous for a grandmother. Thank you. And they range in age from seven years to 14. And so uh, my middle grandson uh, who passed away several years ago, he was born with some profound disabilities and wasn't expected to live past the day he was born, but he gave us five good years. And so when I think of philanthropy, I think of the Ronald McDonald House and the Make-A-Wish Foundation and some of those organizations that supported us during his life and death. And selling the arts is not that same emotional pull. The arts is a luxury thing for the elite. And whereas something like helping at-risk children or, or you know, whatever, like this is a, something everybody can relate to. Whereas art is a very separate thing. And, and, and subjective. Oh, God. So, yeah, you know, I, I know of many people who, you know, we love classical music. We'll never step our foot in a jazz hall, you know. It's funny. I love jazz. I won't go to classical. Yeah. So it's, it's so particular. It is. And it, it, yeah, I mean, God, and that's the, and, and then of course it's also a, a somewhat like cultural in a way, in a way, I mean like in Europe, like the figure in nudes is very common in the United States. Not so much like plain air painting is a certain genre of like France and England, but not of other countries. Like everything is like the subject matters are very subjective. And so it's very hard to just say, I'm going to support art because the, people want to put criteria on this. Like I think back to like Maplethorpe in, in DC and all this kind of crap. Like they want to, they want to support what they think their community would like, but they don't want to support anything that doesn't match with their own values. That's right. They're very, very particular about giving. And, you know, one of the points that was raised at this DEI meeting that I uh, chaired the other day was that um, too often we've got to change that whole narrative. We keep going hat in hand, you know, asking for support, please, you know, give us whatever meager dollars you have. 
and devaluing, which is something that I worry about, particularly in the light in light of COVID, where we have really stepped it up. We have digitized everything and you know i can watch hamilton for you know nothing yep on disney plus right and so i do worry about the devaluing of the live arts experience because it's going to be a a while before we get back to full capacity and unless you have full capacity we've got to rework that whole financial paradigm oh the the theatrical performances run on such a thin margin anyway like, yeah, I mean, before all this, That's like right. now it's going to be ridiculous. I mean, it's so, I mean, the hat in hand thing you're saying, like one of the, you know, I did nonprofit work for a while here in Wilmington. I got so burned out and tired of basically constantly being begging, like as in the arts. So it's not even being an artist myself, but it's in the arts. We are constantly begging please, will you give us a little more money? Please, can we expand this thing? Please, can we, like, how can we try and shift it so, like, we don't have to be constantly begging? Because I feel like a lot of our emotional energy, our time, our concerns, our fears of, like, losing these support things, like, ends up sucking away the things that could be very progressive and very forward-thinking because we're so worried about losing what little we already have. Or sharing it. (laughs) Yeah, that's another issue completely. I mean, there's because there's so many different arts organizations and they're also niche and they're they're dividing what could be a a good pot of money into like 10 different nonprofits that each get a little bit of money. How can we change that? I don't know that I have the answer to that. How do you change that? What I've worked really hard at trying to do is to cement the economic benefit of the arts because that's what a lot of people, unless they have some real passion for some discipline, when we're talking to government officials, whether they're on the local level or state level, they want to know about the economic return on investment, period. They don't care if you like, you know, the color blue. They don't care, you know, if you like Shakespeare or the Taming of the Shrew. They don't care about that. What they care about is a return on investment. And so we have to show them. And we've been pretty successful at that. This year, our appropriation from the county went from $10,000 to $45,000. Wow. Congratulations. Yes. And that is because we went in and made the case. So the, the Arts Council, we were the local organizing partner for Americans for the Arts. And so we did the surveying that was part of the AEP-5, as it was called, the most comprehensive study of the economic impact of nonprofit arts organizations and their audiences. And the study is done every five years. And we were set to do it again in 20. 21. Of course, that's probably going to change. But what we knew from our research in um, 2015 was that our local arts nonprofits had $14.1 million in direct expenditures and our audiences spent another $41 million, excluding the price of admission. Wait, excluding? Wow. Okay. Excluding I'm the price of admission. Prices. Right. Not so even the ticket, ticket prices. prices. So we were able to show because we went in and we went to 
individual performances, whether they were at the Wilson Center or Thalian Hall or dance performances, and gave surveys. Give us your zip code. But wait, and that's just nonprofit. That's places. just nonprofit. So that doesn't include the for-profit places at all. or art galleries. Art galleries, like most of which are are for-profit. Right. Doesn't include a lot, and so we know that the economic impact is minimally a hundred million dollars. But we were able to quantify this fifty-five point eight million, which fortunately. We had the city of Wilmington to help pay for the study. And this was a study that was paid for nationally by the National Association of Commissioners, the League of Municipalities. So we were able to go back and say, look, your groups are the ones that, you know, they they helped to fund this study. So it, don't just take it from us. Take it from the groups that you are a part of. I love finding statistics. Like the, 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 the one thing that I like... I used to run the pedestrian art program, mm-hmm. which you all run, which is a public sculpture program for those people that don't know it. That um, and and it was an uphill battle from day one, like because you're constantly, when you're talking about public art, you're talking about inclusion of uh, like the public's opinions of art, but you're also talking about like return on investment. So like, you know, when I went to Mayfair and I said, hey, you put up the sculpture, the, the idea was if you put up the sculpture, it'll draw more people to see the sculpture. And then more people come to see the sculpture, then they might end up buying from the people in the retail stores. So, but there's the, that data to be able to prove that is so hard to come by. So what we did, and we've suspended it until our new installation, but we uh, actually used, had an app so if you go and you scan the signage, then you could have the artists talk about their process. And we were able to get some really good numbers on the back end. When people were seeing these, where they were coming from, uh, based on the phone that they dialed in from the area code on their phone. And it's a little big brother-ish, but I'm going to let it go. Yeah. What we found, of course, Wilmington, people from Wilmington were number one. Guess number two. Washington, D.C. Um, Raleigh. And then number three. Washington, D.C. Ohio. Seriously? Ohio? Ohio. I would never have said Ohio. Yeah. So I'm, you know, as I, I think that because of my background in journalism, you've got to show me facts and figures. And so I'm really on that type of thing. Some other statistics that came out of that study was that the arts employ 2,076 full-time equivalent employees in New Hanover County. And we also, as a result of these expenditures at hotels and Ubers and those types of things, generated $5.8 million for city and state tax coffers. Right. Still just in the nonprofit part just of the Just in the, the nonprofit. Right. Yeah, right. Wow. Okay. Taking that a step back, so this is all sort of big picture. You, you sound like you've like you made some amazing like connection state you know, nationwide, big organizations and all that. How does that end up helping, like, let's say, an artist living in the New Hanover County area? I know you have grants. So, like, what are the, how big are the grants? How hard are they? How competitive are they? I'm big on grants and residencies because I think they're the greatest asset that help individual artists. Mm -hmm. But I'm not sure that they do enough, you know, like they're, the the residency there's so many residencies that offer like oh you can come and stay at our place but you have to pay for your own travel and you mm-hmm. have to pay for your own art supplies so like that's not really a benefit that's just a vacation mm-hmm. that you have to pay for 
and grants, I find a lot of grants take uh, so much time and energy to prepare the grant, research the grant, then to write the receipts and the reports and all that kind of stuff that sometimes if the, the, the uh, amount of money isn't a certain amount, it's almost not worth the effort. So we administer several grants. One of them is the Grassroots Arts Program Grant. We are the designated, designated county partner to the North Carolina Arts Council. Uh, and so there we give out about $50,000 a year. In fact, that's what you see these envelopes all over the place. We, we just had a deadline for the Grassroots Grants. So North Carolina has probably one of the most extensive networks of local arts agencies, which are arts councils, in the country. And they have a per capita formula for getting arts funding out across the 100 counties in North Carolina. And so our grants from them generally are 50 to $60,000, depending upon the year. And we are allowed to keep 50% of that. We have not. We've seeded out every bit of it because there are just so few grant opportunities here that we thought was really important to just get that money out to help as many organizations as we can. And it also helps us, relieves us of the burden of having to do programming. We don't need to be programming on that level. We don't need to compete with all of these other organizations. I can't put on a better play. I can't put on a better dance. So this is our part of our footprint here in southeastern North Carolina. So $50,000 to grassroots. Another grant that I administer. Okay, but wait, $50,000 to grassroots. So how many grants do you give out? So like what's the uh, amount to sort of average amount uh, per person or organization? Per organization is generally 2,500 to about 5,000. Okay. Mm-hmm. Not chump change, but it's generally, uh, we seed about 20 organizations each year. Mm-hmm. Another grant that we administer is what had been called the Regional Artist Project Grant, which was intended to award exceptional artists by funding a project pivotal to their advancement in their field. That grant we administer for New Hanover, Pender, Brunswick, Columbus, and now Bladen counties. So generally we give out about $15,000 a year. Now in light of COVID, the state has chipped in a little extra money and so we'll be giving out $25,000. And so 25 artists will likely get $1,000. Uh, All of this is going to happen within the next couple of weeks. We've also partnered with the Wilson Center on a number of grant programs, one called Broadway for a Better World. This is when we had Broadway at the Wilson Center, allowing free of charge tickets, giving free of charge tickets to underserved populations, primarily youth, but also senior groups, those dealing with disability challenges, those types of things. When COVID first hit, we administered another grant through the Wilson Center called the Ghost Light Series, where we uh, actually produced a series, put it on the internet, and allowed people to make donations. And we were able to give, you know, about 40 artists $150 a piece. Because one of the things that you have to remember with COVID is that arts organizations were the first to close and will likely be the last to reopen, you know. And so... We, we knew that, you know, when you got that call or that email or so in the middle of March saying, okay, your gig is done this weekend, that people, because this was, a, you know, the arts are really the backbone of the gig economy, that the light bill that was due next week, you know, probably couldn't be paid. And so it wasn't a large grant, but we wanted to do what we could to help people. 
And so I'm also, uh, I have a Zoom at two o'clock this afternoon with the North Carolina Arts Council. As a result of our work, Arts North Carolina's work in advocating, we got $9.4 million in CARES Act funding specifically for the arts. And so we'll find out later this afternoon how that's going to be divvied up. It's likely that we will have anywhere in New Hanover County from two hundred dollars to $300,000 that we'll be able to give. CARES Act, that's the stimulus money? Right. Okay. Right. And heretofore, uh, many arts organizations had been exempt from, you know, excluded from that funding formula. I and just, in fact... <laughs> I just love the fact that you said heretofore. <laughs> I wax poetic every now and again. I have never heard somebody say that. I've read that many times, but I've never heard somebody <laughs> say that. that was, that's, that's hilarious. Go on. Yeah. And so, you know, we're, arts organizations are really hurting, and particularly those who have facilities that have to be maintained. Mm-hmm. You know, my rent didn't stop. It didn't go down as a result of, you know, COVID. And so here we are six months later. Well, and artists and their studios that they might be renting sort of outside their homes and this kind of stuff. I mean, everybody's affected by this, but the, it's the question of like, how can we, how can we move forward after this? I mean, right now, I feel like there's just this, this huge cultural shift going on between COVID Donald Trump and all the stupid rhetoric that he's throwing around and then the whole st- the whole uprising with the the racist issues that are being sort of brought back to the forefront again there's so much going on simultaneously like how are we going to come out of this we will come out of it you know this country's had a history with the pandemic before and just as i was talking with someone yesterday she said you know they you know, the arts did fine after 1918, you know, and that pandemic, they flourished. And so I think we're going to be fine. I think we're going to have to lead the charge because we are such an economic engine in the country. I mean, we, the arts represent 4.2% of the GDP. That's more than tourism. That's more than transportation. That's more than utilities. That's more, I mean, we just outpace many other industries sectors that don't have nearly as hard a time trying to get funding to do what they do. That's the thing is like, why are, even though there is so much money in the arts and so much support from those who do support it. So I'm not even concerned about the people that don't currently support. So the people who do support it and yet we're still having to beg and borrow and steal to try and like fund and, and, and move forward with it. So it's not, it's not even just maintain, but it's to make something better, to create new. It's still a struggle. You would think in all places, like in America and Europe, like these things would not be such a struggle, but they really, I feel like we're constantly battling just for survival, much less for getting better. Yeah. So I, I think that a lot of it uh, is due to the notion of voluntary patronage Hmm. where you know if if i want to support that i will and if i don't want to support it i won't instead of looking at the big picture but i think that really visionary leaders see the big picture they see the impact that it has not only on the roi as we talked of earlier but also on a community's health so I, I really don't know how to answer the, ask that question again. 
Let me try it in a different way. Yeah, my wife is an accountant, by the way. So ROI, <laughs> totally get it. When it comes to other businesses, let's say, they're often very, they're, they might be competitive, but they're all working sort of towards the same goal. So I'm thinking, you know, a drug company, that every drug company wants to sell drugs and they all want to sell drugs. So they're all sort of on the same page of what the result they want is. In the arts, I feel like we're so segmented in so many ways, like theater, theatrical people want this where versus, you know, they want people sitting in the seats to see their performances. Whereas visual artists want to sell art and have exhibitions. Whereas, you know, musicians want to have more venues and be able to sell their music better through streaming services. I mean, the, there's no consistency in like, it's almost like the arts is too big a word and too broad an umbrella to be able to truly be supportive of all the individual needs of the people that fall under it. Well, you are correct that uh, every genre has its wish list, if you will. But I think that one of my strengths has been fostering these collaborations. We, you know, have some very unlikely bedfellows. So the Arts Council is the lead agency for the development of the Wilmington Rail Trail, the underutilized rail bed that runs up the north side of town. Yeah, yeah, I know it. Kudzu covered. Uh, right. We are trying to forge those relationships. We just, we along with Wilmington Downtown Inc. and the Downtown Business Alliance came together with funding to look at a route realignment study for wave transit. Our interest, of course, was getting them around to getting patrons around to the four creative districts in the downtown area. And so, you know, we... As a result of that work, we're able to get a brand new trolley. And what does an arts organization, you know, an arts council have to do with public transportation, some would say. To me, from the way you're expressing it, like, I totally understand it. Because, but that's, I think that's a really good question is sort of, what is your definition of what an arts council's role is in a community? Yeah. So our mission is to support artists and arts organizations within and through innovative public-private partnerships that support jobs, stimulate commerce, and showcase the region as an arts destination. And we're firing on all cylinders. But, you know, I realized very early on is that we have to part. We can't be a silo. We can't be over here. We're the artsy ones. And the rest of life goes on, and we are not integrated with that any, any other part of our, you know, community. Well, and that's the tradition, you know, I mean, artists like sec segment themselves away. They, they go and rehearse in these little rehearsal spaces or they go into their studios and they work privately. And then once they're done with their thing, they just present it and go, ta-da, you should now love what I've produced. But that's not, that's not how it needs to work these days. And that, that part of this is there are new things that have to happen. Social media is a great one. These kinds of things that we're just slow to evolve and slow to accept and slow to embrace, you know, like the investment in a new trolley to, to ferry patrons around to the locations where events are going on. That's an important infrastructure element that most people in the arts don't understand why that's important. Yeah. Yeah. So whenever they offer a seat at the table, to talk about the arts and how we can become better integrated into the community, I am there. 
for sure. And you have to take advantage of these opportunities. First, you have to recognize those opportunities and see where you might fit in and your constituency might benefit from your being at this table. I didn't know, you know, two years ago that I was going to be leading a park effort. I mean, who knew? But I, you know, remained open to the possibility. We were looking for places, other places to put pedestrian art. And that area came up and I said, well, we don't own it. I said, but I do know who I can talk to. So we went to council and council gave us their blessings. We were able to come up with a $10,000 match that released $40,000 in federal funds for the creation of a master plan for this park because I didn't want to do the master plan for the park. <laughs> and so now we've got a park coming up. It's going to be a pedestrian plaza with cultural and recreational amenities that is going to be a nice connector to this residential, largely residential community that has no access, pedestrian access into downtown Wilmington unless they're crossing Third Street, which is a major highway. Absolutely. I mean, that's one other thing that I keep, like every city I go to, I don't care, small town, big city, whatever it is, the arts is everywhere. I mean, the, in some ways, it's really great that no matter sort of what neighborhood you're in, in a city, you can generally find something artistic or creative. But in some ways, it's really annoying. Like, in, I would love it, though, I guess it's probably not, it wouldn't work. But I would love it if like, all the arts would sort of come to a neighborhood. So like, you could literally just go to a neighborhood and it's the arts neighborhood. And, like, it, it would be great. But probably economically, it's probably not a good idea, is it? Yeah, well, and Wilmington is so far flung these days, you know, and you've got these little pockets. I'd say all the time that the arts here have to compete with a couple of things. One of them is weather. And the beach. <laughs> and the beach. Because people have such laid back lifestyles, you know. So if you're going, you know, home to your house out on the marina or on the ocean, yeah, it would take a lot to get you to leave that to exactly. come somewhere so down. Exactly. So this is what our biggest challenge is. It's interesting. I was having a conversation just last night with some artists, and they were saying like, "How visual artists?" So they were saying, "How can you get into?" Because there's the in every city, there's a lot like a rich neighborhood, and there it's very hard for artists to get into the that community in some way, be accepted by them or patroned by them or whatever. And like we came up with. The best way is to get for visual artists was to contact interior designers. And then the interior designers would basically then encourage the people to put artworks into their homes that they would not naturally have thought of themselves. So, I mean, a lot of it is it's not just like making a good product, but it's also then connecting to other people who can take that product and put it in the right place. Right. So, you know, to that point, the Landfall Foundation, that's primarily how they raise funds for their, um, their grant program is through the Landfall Art Show, which is a huge show. And they raise tons of money in a very lucrative community. These, you know, these people are going out there buying, the, actually buying the art. It's, it's wonderful. And then the Landfall Foundation, of course, puts this money back out into the community. It's, it's wonderful. It's just absolutely wonderful. Now, we also run the Fourth Friday Gallery Nights. And so we have had to suspend it through 2020, of course. And we started out when the galleries approached me right after we reestablished the Arts Council. There were eight galleries. We are now up to about 20. It Right here in the downtown area, not far flung, right here in the downtown area. And it's been wonderful. So 
in here, and we're probably the smallest of the galleries. This is called an ACES gallery, which stands for Arts Council Exhibition Space. Anywhere on, on the fourth Friday of each month between six and nine, we have minimally 300 people that come through here, which is why we had to cancel it. There's no way we can have those kinds of numbers in here anymore for the, foresee, you know, for the foreseeable future. So, and you know, I was very intentional about it. You know, we were granted space in the manse of the Brooklyn Art Center. Our office was there initially. And I was like, you know, this is nice, but first of all, we don't want to be so tied in with, a, you know, one arts organization that they think that, you know, we're just a department of the Brooklyn Art Center. We are not. So if we are serious about positing the arts as an economic engine, then we need to be right in the heart of downtown Wilmington. And we need to be, you know, as near to our economic develop downtown economic development agency, Wilmington Downtown Inc. It was part of the positioning of the arts. Not going hat in hand, but saying we are a viable industry here and, you know, we need to be recognized as such. All right. So moving forward from your experiences, what's some advice you can give to either a young arts organization or a young artist that's looking to expand and sort of try to sort of lead their journey in, in a more positive and successful manner? When I look back at the early days of the Black Arts Alliance and the North Carolina Film Festival, I think one of the strengths was the fact that we did not encumber ourselves with a lot of debt early on. You know, if you have, uh, for example, the film festival that, you know, runs four days out of a year, why do you have to have a place year round? And can you put that money to better use by actually funding a project or, or doing something like that. So I would say be very, very careful early on. And it's wonderful to be able to scale up, but you, you can't scale up if you're not around because you've exhausted all your resources very early on. So that's one of the things that I would say. And I can't stress that enough. I think that too many times you know, we have the best of intentions. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. It's usually going to boil down to two or three people actually doing the work. And then we know that historically we've been underfunded. So, you know, let's find out where those dollars are going to come from and run it like a business. I made those mistakes with some of the, the nonprofits I ran here in Wilmington years ago. Like I overextended and 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 things just didn't work out for whatever reason and it, i mean it, it takes sometimes it takes a little bit of a make a mistake to learn from your own mistake but sometimes you do have to remember to listen to the people who have done things like whatever you're trying to do before because they they already know the mistakes and they've already learned and they can give you the wisdom to help you to avoid these things, which I and my youthful arrogance did not listen to and wish I had. So, yeah. The other thing I would say to organizations is that it's really imperative that you surround yourself with a great board. Absolutely. My biggest problem was I never got a good board. Like just, I, I didn't even understand the benefit of a good board until nearing the end. And I suddenly was like, oh, that's what it, like the, that a good board of a nonprofit should be actively working for you, not just sitting on the board, not just being a, a figurehead, whatever, but like they should be talking you up and doing things on their own time and energy to, to support the programs and, and all this. 
And I didn't do that. And I was really bad at it. But yeah, I mean, boards are something that are very, very overlooked. And that is, you know, it's it's great to have a great executive leadership, but it is the board who was really tasked with helping to carry that mission forward. And you're right. They have to be out there doing the ass. They, you, they have to invite you into their circle of friends in order to grow your organization. And, you know, I tell people, or I tell this present board now, you are the board I've always deserved <laughs> because they are on it, you know. They are on it with fundraising and with uh, great ideas. And they're not trying to be the programming arm of the organization, but realizing that if the, the organization has to exist in order for us to do anything. So make certain that we have the resources to be in place to carry forth this mission. All right. So moving forward, sort of trying to wrap this up at this point. So moving forward between your work with like racial issues between your and your work with working in a small Southern town, trying to make it be more progressive, more forward thinking. What what are some of the things that you are sort of striving to do, hoping to do? What What's the prospects for the future in your, your vision? So again, we have many major projects. First of all, let me say this. Our vision now is a lot different than it was six months ago. So our mission now is to ensure that our arts organizations are stabilized so that when we come out of this and have increased capacity and can get some audiences approximating what we had before, a lot of organizations are going to need help with that. Now, it's true that we do have some smaller organizations that for them, it was just a matter of contracting. Okay, so we, we can't meet, so we just shut down until we can meet again. But then you have other organizations that have physical spaces that still have to be maintained. The lights have to be paid. The phone bill has to be paid. The rent has to be paid. And so helping to stabilize those organizations is our mission for the next year or so. I, I would say through 2021, making certain that our arts organizations are in a position to reopen in whatever capacity lawmakers decide they can open because we have a, a graduated tier system. We're at 2.5 now in terms of reopening. You've heard of this. Yeah, I mean, because it's hard because generally arts organizations and arts in general, they don't have savings they don't have bank accounts to say like to plan for you know oh if we have a downturn whatever but you know much like businesses generally do like a, a for-profit business oftentimes will have said okay let's put away some savings in case we have a difficult three months six months whatever but arts organizations work on such a razor thin you know return on not return of it um Profit margin, margin mm -hmm. profit margin that they they don't have that savings. They don't have that cushion to be able to go. Okay, well we can just hold on for a little while. Like they, we don't we don't think like that. Like that's not our mindset. And that's where you know, like you said earlier, artists and the arts organizations need to think more like businesses. Right. Though I'm really surprised at businesses. I mean, look at how many have closed. They couldn't go three or six months without you know. It's true. Business as it's true. usual. It's true. Yeah. They couldn't do it. I mean, look at how mass closings of these retail operations that have been, you know, venerated brands that have been around for decades. And this happened and it is surprising. I mean, across the board, but it, it sort of shows like who did better planning, basically. You know, like I think it's funny, like I what I've been thinking a lot about is 
I grew up in the generation of more or less in the 80s, let's say, was my sort of formative years. And so, like, I grew up in the decadence and the craziness and the cocaine and the shoulder pads, you know, all the crazy stuff. And this generation, what are the, how is this experience going to affect them as they go on? So, like, is, how is the arts going to be affected? Because, like, we're running out of TV shows to watch. We're running out of movies to watch because nobody's been able to produce new ones. And so, like, it's going to be a very interesting time moving forward as far as production of and support of the arts in the next generation because of this experience. And I have no idea what that's going to look like. And it sort of scares me a little bit. It scares me too. And and I think it's compounded by the fact that, as I mentioned earlier, I think that there is going to be, uh, and there is already, a devaluing of the art because you can go get anything online. I mean, you've got Met performances, you've got Broadway, you've got anything you want online. But I, you know, I'm hopeful that the live experience will continue to be the calling card for the arts. You know, we have to kind of shift uh, our model for what success looks like. You know, it used to be packing a house and we had no problems doing that. But now that we have these challenges, because what I've heard and seen in terms of research is that 65% of people think that attending a performance is too risky. So that number is going to have to come way down before we, you know, approximate any sense of normalcy. Mm -hmm. It's going to have to come way down. Well, I mean, like even just advancements in technology have helped and hindered a lot of the arts. Like I'm a photographer. So like my background is creating photographs, hanging them on the wall and selling them. Well, these days, a lot of people don't like buying them because they can just download them or they can just look at my website and get a good sense of the work and they don't feel the need to go to an exhibition or even purchase the works because, well, they can see it on their computers or their phones. And same thing with social media. Like, of course, you and I both grew up in, not in the generation of social media. And so like the, the whole evolution of how art is experienced, I see like I see more process videos of people making art than necessarily like completed beautiful art. And so that engagement of the process is becoming much more interesting to the general public than necessarily the final result, which is a huge shift. That's like a that, great point. That is not at all how I grew up. Like I grew up that I hide in my studio and I do my process and nobody gets to see me doing it because I'm going to screw up a lot and I don't want to see you messing me messing everything up. But when I get it right, I'll show you my correct thing. But now they want to see that, like that the more successful artists oftentimes are showing their mistakes and their flubs and their, you know, whatever the behind the scenes stuff because it makes them more relatable and that's something that's it new. It humanizes them. It does. I mean, because we as artists have been like often our ivory towers, very elite away from the masses, but the social media has encouraged us to be more vulnerable and show our mistakes and be more human in a public way that traditionally arts, artists, performers, all these people didn't do. They only put out their their album when it was done or their theatrical performance once it was perfected or their piece of art once it was, you know, completed to their satisfaction. But now it's very much about who you are and your acts and your processes and your techniques. And this is a shift that's very interesting. It is. I think it is the social media and 
COVID. Oh, absolutely. Where we are looking for human connection in any way we can. And if you mess up, well, then, you know, that makes you even more human. Which is so the opposite of everything we grew up with. Like, all the people I venerated in the arts were perfect. Like, you only saw their perfect alpha, you know, thing. They're perfect their fabulous performance their their incredible album their or their finished art on the wall but now it's less about that yeah, show me your bloopers pretty much <laughs> like and i don't want to show my bloopers i know i'm i'm not of the generation of this but like i don't want to show my bloopers like i want to show the right the good stuff the finished stuff the stuff i feel proud of that i want to put my name associated to but that's not what they want anymore yeah. and it's fascinating yeah. People are looking for an authentic experience. I know. That's hard. But that's what this conversation is. That's what we're trying to do anyways. Yeah. yeah. So, okay. But but social media, we didn't really touch on that. How does an arts council use social media? How do you see it as a benefit? or, Or how do you assist others in using social media well? So we produce a weekly newsletter that is very graphic in nature. So... Wait, an email newsletter? Mm-hmm. Do you actually find those work still? Oh, yeah. Really? Okay. Because oh, yeah. I just sent out one yesterday asking for people to respond to a survey about the Wilmington Rail Trail and 700 responses instantly. Wow. Okay. Instantly. I'm not, yeah, I'm not a fan of those. I don't like receiving them, so I don't want to send them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's good. Yeah, but they. Yeah. But people so do it's still. not just for the Arts Council. So we, we do it for all of the organizations. And in fact, when we finish, I'm just going to show you a few videos that I, I wanted to share with you about some of the projects that we're involved in. And I'll show you the newsletter as well. And you, you get to see. What I actually do. receive your newsletter. Okay. Still <laughs> and you, 12 you know, years yeah. later. <laughs> so you click the link and you go straight to that organization's website or, you know, response form or what have you. People love that. And especially here where, you know, we have an aging demographic. They want something big and bold. So that's why I said, no, we're going to put in the posters. We're not going to have a whole lot of text and we're going to put direct links and the organizations love it. You let one of them get, you know, miss out on an opportunity to get in because they didn't send stuff on time, which is, you know, a problem sometimes. Boy, do we hear about it because they, they want to get in front of the, the, audience that we've called over the past eight years mm-hmm. what about so so what about like facebook and and uh instagram and twitter do you use them yes we do facebook and twitter primarily instagram i was told by a social media a specialist uh, years ago pick one or two i mean you, you can't be everything to every social media platform absolutely and yeah. so facebook we keep up with and we also have like a, a hoop we're part of a hoop sweep suite so that it also populates our Twitter. The same thing that we post to Facebook, post to Twitter. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's that software that you, that yes. you can use. So you can schedule things in advance and all that kind of stuff. Uh, yeah, but it, it just automatically, when I put it into eye contact, which is a, our e-newsletter uh, platform, mm-hmm. it populates that. And it's supposed to do LinkedIn too, but it, you know. Who cares about LinkedIn? It's fine. <laughs> but we so we do stick to Facebook and Twitter hmm. primarily. Okay. And and those newsletters are going into emails, which is different than our social media platform. We have about maybe not quite three thousand people on Facebook, only because I can't be all things to all people. 
Well, but the Wilmington arts community is only so big and there are only going to be only so many people that are engaged in it. I mean, it's, it's different. Like if you were part of the Raleigh, I mean, just by demographics, mm -hmm. Raleigh is simply a larger city. Wilmington is only so big. I mean, there's only, like I had, a, I had an email list back when I ran a nonprofit and it was ridiculous. I, I made it way too big and way too vague. And like one thing I found about those kinds of things was having fewer higher quality people on your email list is more beneficial than having a volume of people that don't engage. Yeah. So numbers on that kind of thing is, is more about transactional numbers than like a quantity number. Mm -hmm. Like you want a good amount of people engaging so that you know that, that the people that are re receiving it actually care. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad to, to be able to get the analytics on the back end that show, you know, I, I looked up, I said, well, I, I want to see about, the, you know, the rail trail, how, how it performed, because even before it hit, we sent out ours, we had 1,100 responses. And this is just based on a video that the mayor and uh, another councilman and I did a couple weeks ago. 1,100 just off the bat, just, just using Facebook. It's very good. And so the other 700 that have come in since, you know, we sent just our direct newsletter is just, and we, we see numbers like this each week. Hmm. So people are really looking for this. And we always put the Arts Council events up at the top. So if we got, you know, our grants programs, we just finished um, commissioning $250,000 in public art for the airport. So any of the opportunities that we have are up at the top. And then we have, you know, the visual arts, the performing arts, the film, that type of thing. And so people, yeah, they're using it. It's great. All right. Last thing, literally, I know I said last question before, but this is actually the last question. Um, okay. So the future, so with you, because I'm interested in the, the background of the racial issues and things like this also like, and because I feel like Wilmington is still very racist and very segregated and I wish that it wasn't. And I want to know what's going to, what do you, what would you like or how would you like to see the future happening as far as the issues of the arts and race in the Wilmington, New Hanover area? So going back to my days as a news director, it was in 2015. Anyway, it was the mid-census period, and it showed a precipitous drop in the number of African-Americans who were here. And why was that? It was because our kids were moving to Raleigh and Charlotte and some of these other places with yeah, jobs. The brain so drain. The brain drain. Yeah. We had that because Wilmington is still a service-based economy. So if you have aspirations to be anything other than in the service industry, then you've got to go someplace else. And that was particularly true for African-Americans, where I think um, said 20 percent. Don't quote me here. But anyway, it was a precipitous drop in the number of those 18 to 34. They are the ones that are most likely to be engaged and in your community. And they're not here. Mm. So what we have to do is to keep making the case for economic development that is going to attract them back to this area. If not, then I think we, we may have forever lost them to the Raleigh's and the Charlottes. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's even true for any artist as well, because I mean, there's not a huge 
market necessarily for doing what you, you know, as an artist creating and selling. But on the other hand, artists like visual artists in, the, in particular in this case can they can live anywhere and just ship it with DHL or FedEx or anything. But when it comes to like performing artists, like they still have to be where the the patrons are, and if they're not here, they kind of have to go there. Right. And also, like you could say, where the education is. You know, so let me, I no knock on any of the education in the New Hanover County, but like if there's better education elsewhere, people are going to go where they can get the education they desire. For sure. But the reason I bring up the economic development agencies is that they are the ones that are you know, tasked with bringing in business and industry. And, and you see all of these you know, high dollar developments, housing developments, and I keep wondering where are the jobs to support? It's retirees. I mean, this neighbor, this region, it attracts them. I mean, it's beautiful for retirees, but you're right. There's not a lot of businesses that will attract that younger generation right. that, that need to be here in order to create a strong, young, vibrant arts community. Exactly. And when your top five industries are, you know, your city, your county, your hospital and Walmart, what do you expect? Indeed. I sat on a committee for the hospital because they were trying to find ways to attract black physicians, believing that black physicians would have an impact on the black community. I actually recently heard a study that does. Yes. Like that if your doctor is the same race slash gender as the patient, that they will have more trust and faith in them and than, better outcomes yeah of course and, the, and then you know the results of that are better so it's interesting that that bias towards basically similar like like they'll trust people of like so white on white black mm -hmm. on black you know hispanic on hispanic whatever but i thought that was an interesting study so yeah i mean you're getting the equal percentage of availabilities i mean whether that's in medical or the arts you know it's like so everything should be percentage-wise equal. So the, the, the population percentage of whatever ethnicity people are, there should be that same percentage of experiences available in the arts. Yeah. But they're not. Yeah. And right after the protests started, after George's murder, I had, I can't tell you how many of my friends who had, I really love, but they were reaching out saying, okay, well, you know, how, how does this happen? How do we you know, move past this point? And it's just so belated and so deep that, you know, I can't give you an answer. Well, but it's not move past. That's that's my problem is, is like, I don't feel like we should move past this. We need to deal with this. We need to make changes, not just move past. I feel like move past is what we've done for centuries. Mm -hmm. So like, now we need to do something about it and exactly. change something, not move past. So that's a little vocabulary thing that I'm yeah. like, yeah, but that's how we, that's how it's always been done and how it's always been done is not necessarily the right way. I, I would agree with you wholeheartedly. And my response to them is like, think of any restaurant that you've gone to in Wilmington any time in the past month and tell me how many black people you saw working there, either in the front of the house or even in the kitchen. How many? And we know that restaurant work is generally the way we cut our teeth, you know, and get some valuable work experience. And you've got a whole class that has been shut out 
of that most seminal experience. Okay, wait, just to clarify. So you're saying that currently under COVID, there are less minority workers or more in restaurants? Less. Well, here in Wilmington, my point was that there were none. Oh, okay. I mean, you can go to any restaurant here and you don't have any black front of house and very few in the kitchen. But I mean, you know, I think that that has been a trend. It's always been that way. And so if you've got young black people who have been shut out of the most basic job experience that you can get for whatever reason, their own or, you know, systemically, what do you expect? Hmm. It's interesting. So, so you're saying because of the COVID situation. Take COVID out. Okay. So it's not. Yeah, I was just saying, you know, just think about what, where you've been anytime recently. Interesting. But, you know, it, you know, it's predates COVID. Okay. I haven't been here. So, I, you know, yeah. I, I'm trying to be educated. That's sort of the point here. Okay. So there, there are less opportunities at the entry level. Okay. That's news to me. And so when you have black tourists that come to town and they go into restaurants and it's, you know, all white. Well, that's the thing is, is like, is it, yeah, I might cut this part out, but like, is, I feel like a part of it is like politics. I feel like the Americas has become more racially divided under Trump. And then that's trickling down into businesses saying, I'm going to make my political stance by who I choose to hire to be in my co- my company or my business. And so therefore they're becoming more segregated and more emboldened. nationalistic or emboldened to, yeah, to express what traditionally is maybe I'm a liberal. So like to me, I find it all horribly inappropriate and it, it just wrong. But I feel like because of Trump, it has allowed them, I think emboldened is the best word for it. They feel emboldened to become almost more racist or more separatist or nationalist, whatever words you want to put yeah. to it. And that's horrible. That's a horrible state of affairs. It is a horrible state of affairs. But even some of this predates Trump. Does it? Yes, it does. Because these people who are asking me, you know, former board members and and people who I really have a great deal of respect for, it just didn't occur to them. And that's the thing is things they they don't think enough. Like they should be thinking about these things. Like I, I wish I didn't have to think about these things. It should just be obvious. But yeah, I mean, living outside the country and looking at America from as, as having been raised here, it's really kind of painful for me to see what you all are ripping yourselves apart. And nobody's going to win from this. Like, this is not a trajectory that's going to be helpful or optimistic or or growth or any of these kinds of things. It's, it's very much a nationalistic, separatist sensibility. And unfortunately, the arts is one of the things that gets affected dramatically by this because uh, just so many things. I don't even know where to take that. But, you know, I think it links back to social media because I don't know that we would have even seen this much attention Mm. paid to any of it had it not been for cell phones 
and people being caught on camera doing these things. Absolutely. I mean, this stuff... It this, was happening all along. That's right. This stuff has always been happening, but people didn't witness it. Now we're witnessing it, and so now it's affecting, well, hopefully affecting more change. But it doesn't seem to be. That's the thing that's killing me. Is like you're seeing all these horrible injustices that are occurring, but not changing anything. And I mean, like just this morning or just yesterday, there was a thing in Kansas or wherever it was that they're not charging the police officers. Like, come on. Like, seriously, you're not charging the police officers? That's ridiculous. You've got to. I mean, they did illegal things. They killed people. Like, I don't even care about race or whatever, but like, you kill people, you have to pay the price for that. Like, that's justice. But it's not happening. And it's not getting better. Like, I feel like it should be getting better and it's getting worse. Well, I don't think that you can watch the video of somebody kneeing someone in the neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds and not be affected on some level. And so, you know, what would that change look like? Well, that's the question. So that's the question for you. So like, because I, I feel like it's not my place to decide or even come up with ideas of change because I'm, as much as I don't like saying this, like I'm of the oppressive part. Like I'm the white guy. So like, I want to hear what people on the other side. So it's not just black, but any minority. So like, I don't care, Mexicans, whatever, Filipinos, I don't care. What, what should be done? What do we need to do? I'd like to keep it closer to the arts, but in general races, like what should we do? I don't know. And I, I don't feel it's my place to decide or make any recommendations. It's, I think it's your place to try and say like, okay, Let's do a little bit more of this. Let's try a little bit of that. What What do we need to do? I, I think that you can't absolve yourself of the need to put something out there because, you know, I say all the time, don't hold me up as, you know, the bastion of righteousness because I've had privileges that many people don't have. And I haven't had privileges that many other people have. <laughs> yeah, but I think it's incumbent upon all of us I mean, you can't say, you know, because I'm a white guy, this is not my issue. It's not my problem to come up with the solution to this. It is all of our. Okay, I get that. So more of a, so more dialogue. Yeah, but I'm sick of talking. That's that's what I'm getting at. Is like, what can be done to make a change? Like, like what? I know it's not going to be big. I know it's not going to be some sort of stupid legislative thing. It's not going to be political. It's going to be small acts that are going to slowly make little changes and then they're going to grow and all that. So what are some small acts? Try again like to keep it with the arts, but like what are some small acts to to create to try to break this cycle that we can do to move not just racism issues uh, no matter what the race and the arts forward. I think it goes back to what we started with, and that is funding early experiences, making it equitable that everybody has exposure to the wonderful arts experiences that are available, not just in this community, but across this country, and making it okay for people to express themselves through these various genres. But again, you're not going to, you know, all of a sudden become an adult and become a muralist. 
you have to have had exposure to it, gained appreciation, and most definitely have some sort of experience with something mm-hmm. early on. And that's hard sometimes because the teachers are often older and not as progressive. The parents are, of course, of a previous generation and not necessarily as progressive. So it's, it feels like it's something that has to be almost forced into the system to, to make them include this stuff, even though the people actively do, like, you know, the teachers and the, the parents of these children may not think this way. We need, Somehow it needs to be implemented into their lives to make this change happen instead of hope it will or just plan for it or try this. Like Because I don't think it's going to happen that way, that easily. Yeah. And, you know, I think that if some of what we ha- we've seen already has not turned our hearts, then no amount of legislation or anything else is going to help. And the arts have been really good at humanizing us and drawing us together in some, to some extent. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe that's how it happens, but I, I just, I don't know. And I don't, I'm, I'm not without hope, but I think it's going to be people coming at life with heart and that informing the uh, art and culture of communities, which in turn informs the art and culture of our country. I don't know what else to say. And I didn't actually expect you to have an answer. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, no, no, this was just just your perspective. Yeah, I mean, you it. know, I just, if people don't have it in their hearts to do good hmm. and to do right by people and to afford everybody human decency and human kindness, if it's not in you, then what, how? How do you do that? I have no idea. That's my question. I, I, have no, I don't know. I don't either. And, I, you know, I've been thinking long and hard, and I'm hopeful that the session that we're convening on diversity, equity, and inclusion will help me to start thinking of things that I hadn't thought of, because I don't think of everything in terms of race. I just don't never have. Mm-hmm. And that's why I don't want to be held up as the, the role model for, you know, the black community and all, because I, my experience has been so great. I have been at these tables. I have done what I could do. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not going to be the woe is me, poor black person who, you know, just can't get no justice nowhere. It's just not going to be me. Yes. I would never equate that to you. And not that I'm ignorant of what's going on. But I also take it in limited doses. I, I know that it vexes my spirit. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, I mean, I guess that I just wanted to have a discussion about this, though the reality is I know the two of us sitting in this room are never going to come up with a resolution yeah. to this. I mean, and these conversations are taking place across the country, across the community. Across the We've world. Str- across the world. Yeah. Yeah, as they should be. Mm-hmm. My mother had a saying, it's a time in the land, <laughs> and it's a time in the land for sure. It is. You know, the belated racial reckoning, COVID, 
hurricanes, earthquakes. I mean, we've just, we've got it all going on right now. And it really, if it doesn't force us to look within and say, am I being the best version of myself, then no amount of social justice or arts experience is going to change that. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I've taken up enough of your time. Thank you very much for this. Thank you. And I really feel, wish that I hadn't been all over the place, but these are weighty questions and I, you know, I, I'll be thinking about them for sure. Me too. <laughs>